Welcome to Season 8 of the Leadership Educator Podcast, your source for knowledge and expertise on facilitating leadership learning. Passionate about leadership education? You want to expand your resource toolbox with practical teaching, learning, and program design strategies? This is the podcast for you. If you haven't done so already, please hit subscribe so you'll never miss an episode. Hi, and welcome to the Leadership Educator Podcast. I'm Dan Jenkins, Professor of Leadership and Organizational Studies at the University of Southern Maine. And I am Lauren Bullock, Assistant Professor of Instruction at Temple University. In our eighth season of the podcast, we are focused on research and scholarship in the field. So we're asking those who know that area well, um, from journal editors to peer reviewers, research group leaders, scholars, we're asking, where do you go? Where should leadership educators go for research? Today, we are very excited to welcome back Dr. Lindsay J. Hastings, Clifton Professor of Mentoring Research at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln, and welcome to the show Dr. Hannah M. Sunderman, Assistant Professor of Adaptive and Organizational Leadership at Virginia Tech. Lindsay and Hannah collaborated regularly while Hannah was a student at UNL, and we wanted to spend our time today hearing about a few things. So first, we'd like to hear about their experiences and perspectives, preparing conference proposals and research papers for ALE. Both are very involved in ALE. Um, Second, we wanted to talk about research that has been published after those presentations at uh, ALE or elsewhere related to their research agenda. And then last, we're really interested in just their involvement, leading and participating in the ALE research focus area network, which we often call FANS. So first, welcome back to the show, Lindsay. Thank you so much. I'm so excited to be here with Hannah. (laughs) We could tell instantly when y'all got on Zoom, it was just like this super excitement. So we're happy. And Hannah, welcome to the show for the first time. Thank you. As you know, Lauren and Dan, I've listened to your podcast for years. And I remember, especially during COVID, which you all have talked about recently too, walking around my neighborhood with my headphones on and uh, feeling it as a way to engage with my leadership education community as we were all struggling to do something new. And I am thrilled to get to spend time with Lindsay as always. Oh, awesome. It feels very like Fraser-esque of the 90s. Long time listener, first time caller. Like that's my favorite, favorite saying. So we're so happy to have you and happy that you were able to listen as well. Um, You can actually check out uh, our January 24th episode NDSL number 175, Research and Assessment Methods for Leadership Development in Practice with Drs. Dave Roche and Lindsay um, to learn how Lindsay first came on the pod and and how she first uh, got introduced to us. But Dan, I'll turn it over to you because I know you've got a bunch of questions. I know you're chomping at the bit with questions. (laughs) Well, I'm just really excited to have uh, Lindsay and and Hannah uh, on and um, just so much respect for them and what they've done in the field. Um, and two, you mentioned, you know, uh, Lindsay's returning. And so we, we chat a little bit about how her and I, uh, I think, are, you know, our origin story, so to speak, as far as where we think we first interacted, although we think we've always known each other as far as uh, ALE circles and whatnot. And then Hannah and I, I got a chance to, to meet her, I think just kind of like rolling the dice type of thing with being paired with her when she was a doctoral student at University of Nebraska-Lincoln. And the ILA does this Emerging Scholars Research Consortium, which is um, for folks that are listening, it's great for emerging scholars. It's something that I did when I was a doctoral student. I want to say it was the 2010 ILA conference, which was my first conference back in Boston. Um, and I got paired with a faculty member at Richmond uh, University, the Jepson School. And so I learned that I was paired with uh, this doctoral student at UNL, uh, Hannah Sunderman, and we were very excited to to meet each other. And I heard from uh, Lindsay and I think LJ too, that there was shared excitement to meet each other. (laughs) So I appreciated that. And then I've had a great opportunity to get to know Hannah better over the the last few years, meeting and connecting with her at conferences and just been very impressed with what you've uh, accomplished. And um, as a junior faculty member, just very, very early on in your career. So welcome. I'm very excited to jump into the conversation here. Thanks, Dan. I was, it was like a, you know, meeting the people you read about and then they're there in front of you. And that was my moment. This is Dan Jenkins. I read about you for years. I think it was that same conference too, where I was doing a presentation and looked out and saw Julie Owens in the audience and about fainted. So that was a really big week for me. 
I love it. Love it. And it's, and it's fun. I mean, I feel the same way. Like, I mean, when I first started working with Corey Seamiller, I was like, oh my God, I'm signing you in my dissertation. And here we are talking to each other, you know, kind of thing. And so it's, it's funny how we get these, you know, uh, what we call, um, I guess, gleefully our, our academic crushes, you know, and, and so it's fun to, to do that kind of stuff. And it's just, it's speaks to our community of practice for sure. And so, you know, speaking of, of some of these, like the way, you know, ways we met and collaborations and stuff, would y'all share a little bit about how like you met and some of the research that y'all collaborated on when you were student and faculty at uh, UNL? Well, the cool thing is Hannah and I go way back. Uh, So Hannah was actually an undergraduate leadership mentor in NHRI leadership mentoring. So I got to watch um, Hannah grow up as an undergraduate student in our leadership mentoring program at the University of Nebraska. During that time, she also participated in UCARE, which is our undergraduate research experience. So I got to see her get her feet wet with research. And it was so fun to not only watch her as a leadership mentor, but to watch her come alive in the research process um, and really develop her acumen in that space. So I begged her to start a graduate program and she was uh, kind enough to consider uh, the opportunity. So we also had an opportunity for her to be a graduate assistant for NHRI within the department. So I had this lovely opportunity to not only work with her very closely in undergrad, but also throughout her, both her master's and her PhD program. So it was a delight to be able to watch her grow longitudinally over a, a significant period of time. I was thinking about this this morning too, in preparation for the podcast, just how long ago I met Lindsay. So it was the spring of 20. 20- 2013. So it's officially been a decade uh, that we've known each other uh, as of just about this this time 10 years ago. So thinking too that Lindsay was a great research mentor for me in undergrad, which is where I first started to become attracted to the idea of maybe a higher education degree. I had never really thought about it before. And then my senior year, I was fully planning on going to the corporate world and doing recruitment and training and development. And then Lindsay said, maybe you should get your PhD. And so then I took the GRE three days later and um, ended up here. So, so much of my journey as a leadership educator has connections to my relationship with Lindsay and her mentorship and providing opportunities uh, for me to develop and grow and a belief in me in a way that I hadn't yet seen in myself. I love to hear your story, but also we need y'all to come back and tell us how you celebrate your 10 year anniversary. So I'm that person that believes you share, like you celebrate those like friendship anniversaries. And I totally believe y'all should celebrate this year. So just come back and and tell us how y'all celebrate. How, what is the 10 year anniversary? Is that like the nickel or the wood or, you know, what's the 10 year? I'm the worst person to ask only because I said to my husband, um, like he got me something and he got me like candy. And I was like, and it's near Valentine's Day. And I'm like, I don't like, I think my candy should be heart shaped. So I don't know what we're, and we've been married this year. I should know off the top of my head this year, I think it'll be 12 years. And I'm like, so is it 12 years or is that Rolos? Like, is that how this works? So I'm the last person you should ask about that. But I do want to encourage you to definitely celebrate because it's important. Okay, Hannah, I'll be thinking about wine, flowers. <laughs> tell tell Jack thought. that I'm really going to up the game for him. So <laughs> my first thought was wine too. So clearly we're all <laughs> Uh, you know, it's funny. I told Dan this story, but my one of my uh, professors in my graduate program taught us about quantitative statistics using a wine journal article. It was all about different rates. So, you know, we were engaged from the jump. We already were interested, but we were engaged from the jump when she explained. And I, I wish I could remember the specifics. It's been like five or six years now. But yeah, she pulled out a wine article and taught us how to do quantitative. Brilliant. Brilliant. Yeah. Yeah. I think I said that in the class. I was like, I, you know, I don't know who needs to hear this, but I've never had a statistics or quan or qual or researcher ever teach me using wine articles. Um, anyway, back on track though. So y'all talked about how you met and about how, you know, Lindsay, you, you saw something in Hannah and you tapped her and said, you know, come on, like, let, let's keep going with this. Can you talk a little bit about how y'all ended up working together, but specifically, how did you use the fan to like help foster this research agenda that y'all have? Well, it was a a fun opportunity for us to engage with a broader community of researchers within leadership education. So the fans are not that old. Dan, when were they started? 
Do we know? I, I want to say the first I meetings 20, were 2017. 17, yeah, 17 or 18. That sounds about right. I think I know Joe Ehrensdorf, I think, was in office. She might have been incoming vice president or something like right around that time. Um, okay. But but I think I remember getting a getting the the, the invite from her, you know, like, hey, would you mind doing this type of thing? And um, that sounds about right. I think well, it was 2017 only because I led the student affairs fan for a little bit with John Banter. Oh, so okay. That's right. I was that's still right. in student affairs when I led the fan. So I think it was 2016, 2017. Okay. Because I was, I was thinking, Hannah, that you were firmly into your doctoral program when the fans started. Uh, so when I was approached about leading the, uh, the leadership studies research fan, you know, I was trying to think, okay, how do we sharpen acumen for research in the field? So it was fun to be able to fold Hannah into some of those thought processes, uh, you know, beyond just getting a group of people together occasionally to talk about research. How do we actually sharpen acumen within the field? Uh, so it was a joy to be able to noodle over those thoughts with Hannah squarely in her doctoral program. I would say similarly, getting to listen to Lindsay's thinking around assessment, evaluation, strengthening our research uh, in a community of practice was formative for how I've approached research, taking the time to do things the right way, bringing collaborators on board to ensure that you're using strong methods has all been uh, a result of collaborations with ALE, other members, uh, people who are sharpening ourselves. So I think even this past year about the fan, brainstorming different ideas, what the needs are, what are emerging methodologies, always leaves me with new and different ideas about things I haven't been thinking about or, or different approaches that could strengthen my own scholarship or even ways to help graduate students or other young faculty encourage their research agenda as well. You all were modeling some really good practices as far as, you know, kind of that, that mentor-mentee type of thing that y'all authentically had when as student faculty at, at UNL. Um, and I remember when we were paired together for that Emerging Scholars Research Consortium, Hannah, and, and um, you had sent me some of the, the work up front and then saw your poster at the conference. I was like, all right, well, uh, and it definitely knows uh, what she's doing with statistics. That's clear. Um, <laughs> and... Um, and certainly had a great mentor um, and Lindsay, who also all, definitely knows what she's doing with statistics. And so I think that 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 was something that you all brought into the ALEs that, you know, into the research focus fan, because it was it was really um, I think it was the was it the 2020 or 2021 virtual conference where you all did the session on like statistics, I, I call it like statistics for dummies, but it was much, it was much better, had a much better title than that. But it was really like trying to make it approachable and accessible for folks, whether they were, you know, non-quant folks or, you know, folks maybe that had never had any training. And I think it was that just that really welcoming approach that you all took being open to Q&A. And I just, I really appreciated that. And I think that that has kind of catalyzed some other like professional development types of opportunities and, and really started to hopefully open the door for some folks that were maybe confused or just didn't really know like, oh, how am I going to, how might I uh, approach a quantitative project or, or what have you? How did that come about? Where, where do you kind of see some of that going as you, as you continue to work with each other and, and kind of build that community? Dan, I'm glad that you remember something from, from the ALE workshop. I think it was 2021. And our title was Overcoming Statistics Anxiety, because that was something that we had both, Lindsay and I had seen in our research fan among really competent scholars was a nervousness around quantitative statistics. I had seen it among my peers, even leaving the doctoral program, feeling really hesitant about their efficacy, about engaging in any type of statistical assessment or, or measurement, even when they had research questions that were quantitatively focused, just, just feeling a sense of nervousness and hesitancy. And I've always felt really grateful that I had Lindsay as a mentor who was modeling collaboration in statistics, bringing people on board to help make help us make sure we were doing it right. Or if we didn't quite know how to run a modeling model, getting other people on the team. So, so being able and, and willing and ready to learn. So I'd seen Lindsay model that and then always felt grateful too that uh, I had a good quantitative training background through the psychology department at the University of Nebraska that was really approachable. It was researcher friendly versus statistician. So they often talked about we're learning how to drive the car, not fix the engine. We're not building cars, which is what statisticians doing are doing, but we're focused on driving the cars, which is what we do as researchers. And that sometime as people who want to be researchers, we're taking these classes 
that are a mismatch of our goals and alignment. So we're taking classes that are really more statistician, statistician based, and it becomes really confusing. And so then we think we can't do it and lose confidence. And so really wanting to make statistics feel more accessible and feasible. And that even if you're not going to do it yourself, there are people out there you can collaborate with so that you're able to answer the research questions that you want to using appropriate methods. That was something I had gotten from lots of mentors along the way. So I'm, I'm glad that you remember something I said from, from the workshop. Lindsay, what was your experience? Well, Hannah did a great job of being brave. She wasn't afraid to take advanced statistics courses. Uh, so really, Hannah, Hannah gets all the credit here in that she she is the one who was willing to be brave and, and try some things. And then I just got to cheer her on in the background and say, ooh, I don't know how to do that, but I bet with a textbook and Google, <laughs> I can get up to speed. Um, so, but certainly when as we were building that workshop around overcoming statistics anxiety, part of the discussion around that was, yeah, how, how can we lower the intimidation threshold? I mean, I, I love math, but I don't I don't know everything about multi-level modeling. I didn't take a class in my doctoral program on that. And so when Hannah selected that appropriately as a methodology for a dissertation, I had to play catch up. Uh, so which is fun. Like normally we want the advisor to be the, the all knowing. <laughs> and I was definitely not the all knowing. Um, so Hannah was willing to engage in some bravery, take some classes uh, that stretched her. And then I played catch up in the background uh, using textbooks and Google. So I also think it's fun to remember us talking about this, Lindsay, at different times in the past is that Lindsay comes in with a strong math, math background to academia and higher education. And I did not like math, thought from middle school on that I was not good at math, did not take any math in college, but then found in graduate school statistics to be something entirely different, that it was applied, it was accessible, it was helping me to solve and understand people and problems and to open myself up to a new world and interest as a researcher. Uh, but I find, find it interesting that we come, Lindsay and I come to this with different perspectives too on, on math and history and training, which hopefully helps to underscore that research can be accessible to a wide, wide variety of us. And I love that willingness to, to keep learning. I mean, I remember, um, Lindsay, it's an appropriate methodology, right? Like based on what her research questions were. And so I remember bringing, you know, having a similar experience, bringing my research questions to the methodologist on my committee. And I was done sharing what my research questions were. And he goes, Okay. He goes, well, that's definitely the type of project that you would want to do an exploratory factor analysis for. And I said, that sounds great. What in the world is an exploratory factor analysis? <laughs> and he raised an eyebrow and, and went to a, back, this was, a, you know, what was this in 2009, maybe. So a file, you know, an actual file cabinet and pulled out, you know, um, actual articles and said, read these and come back and uh, see me in two weeks. And I've taught myself a factor now because we had just stopped it. Um, I think regression analysis and I had taken two semesters of quantitative methods from him. And, and uh, but yeah, now I know exactly what that is. And I'm so glad that I had the opportunity to kind of to be pushed to do that and had his mentorship. I'll echo your sentiments. I think Hannah, I was the opposite. I loved math. So Lynn's like you, I loved math, but I found statistics to be something completely different. And I mistakenly took like a statistics class at like night on like a Wednesday in undergrad, which wasn't a good idea at all. But I felt for a while that like I wasn't able to do it. And it really wasn't until I started writing my chapter three, where you're putting everything together, what you're reading and what you're looking at, that all of these disparate facts all of a sudden started making sense. It was like like a, an Olympic medal dropped out the sky and like, finally, you're able to understand and use this. And, and so then it became more fluid. But, but I can only imagine how folks who have been trained and have that confidence in one area are now kind of met with, oh, there's something that I don't know how to do. And this perception that everybody knows how to do it. So it feels like these sessions are kind of like pulling the curtain back, you know, like we all, there is a, there is something we all don't know about research, qual, quant, mixed, all of that. And we, it's okay that we're still learning about it as well. Um, like I think about when y'all are talking about all those models, I was thinking about hierarchical linear modeling and how I did this assignment. And I understood it very clearly within that assignment, but it doesn't match the research that I'm doing. So it's kind of like, I know it and it's out there, but I have no use for it because of, of kind of the path I'm pursuing. Um, so thinking about though, how valuable that experience was at training. I mean, it stuck with Dan. I'm sure it resonates with a lot of people. Like what other opportunities are there either within ALE or like in conversation between the two of you that you think people can uh, attend or participate in that'll help kind of continue along this path, continue learning? 
Well, I certainly love conference experiences because I get to play around with other people's methodologies, right? So if somebody used a method I'm not familiar with, fantastic. I'm going to go learn something. If for anything else, maybe I get two citations out of that presentation that I go look up later. Or occasionally there will be pre-conference sessions at ILA. I remember um, Kevin Lowe did a pre-conference session on meta-analyses. That was a blast. Have I done a meta-analysis since? No. Um, do I necessarily know exactly what I'm doing on a meta-analysis? Absolutely not. Uh, but it was a great gateway into a method I was unfamiliar with. So I love conferences because it is this in low intimidation way to, to get to know a method, to learn about some citations I should go explore. Hannah, how about for you? I agree, Lindsay. I find too that conferences challenge my thinking around methods and seeing what people are doing at different institutions, how they're applying methods. And I was thinking about specifically, I think it was at ALE two or three years ago, and it was Lori Niffin and someone else did, was talking about a scoping review methodology. And I was unfamiliar with that term, but had had a, some concepts that wanted to do an exploration on, but a systematic lit review was going to be too large scale and meta-analysis way too large scale. There wasn't enough data, but I guess I didn't really know what to do. And then as they were talking, I was like, this is it. This is what we've been looking for. And I didn't even know it existed. And so getting to follow up and even in conducting this scoping review on leader and leadership identity development and meaning making, we were pulling from their sources of who they, who they had used, Mun and friends, um, to write our own scoping review. And I don't think that ever would have happened or would have found that methodology over time, perhaps, but the conferences were that gateway to, to exposure for things that were emerging in the field. Because we know too, if you wait for something to get published, that could be a year or two years down because there's such a lag time. So conferences really get us the information quickly in ways that people are there to ask questions. So I, I think it was online even, but immediately was like messaging Lori and emailing her and she graciously shared what they had found and who they had been using, uh, which allowed us to do some cool research too. So definitely that I find conferences to be a good place. And what, something that we've tried to do, and Lindsay has led this in the research fan, is to have like jam sessions at conferences where people bring your methods, bring your questions. And so we're sitting around each other having an exchange of thoughts and ideas. Something like I have a research question around narrative identity, but I don't quite know what method to utilize. And then you're with a bunch of other leadership educators who are brainstorming a variety of methods or theories. Have you thought about this from the psychology or this from sociology? So able to really sharpen each other's capacity by bringing different ideas at different stages of the research process to share to share together and strengthen each other. The other thing that's been illuminating for me is searching journals for methods. So rather than searching by topic, searching by method. So for example, if I want to learn more about multi-level modeling or structural equation modeling, I'll, I'll go into Leadership Quarterly or Journal of Leadership Education, uh, Journal Leadership and Organizational Studies, and I'll just search the method. So that way I can bring together a whole host of articles that have used the same method. And after reading those, I can start to see patterns, processes, to where then I have a step-by-step. -step. And my logic sequential brain loves that, right? Okay, I've got a step one, now we got a step two. And if I have something to follow and justify the process, I feel a little bit more confident, like Hannah talked about. Some of it's just getting over our own efficacy battles. So if I can have a process, a step one and a step two, maybe that helps increase my efficacy just, just this much if I feel confident enough in a, in a process. The, the other interesting thing over the course of my faculty career that's been kind of a two by four moment to the head uh, was I, I had a former undergraduate student who went on to get his doctorate within quantitative psychology, essentially. And he said, look, for those of us who are like statisticians and method geeks, he's like, when we all just marinate in one another, we, we make a lot of fun of how everybody else screws it up in research, but we're realizing, oh, we can't just stay insulated within each other. We have to get out into fields, discipline fields to be able to sharpen the way they do research. So the other thing that I've learned is don't be afraid to ask the graduate students in the statistics department to help you or to be part of your project or the quantitative psych doctoral students. Uh, it actually serves them well to help sharpen your research.
that's something I found too, with, as I am a little bit more quantitative focused, but Lindsay and I both do quite a bit of mixed methods to answer the questions that we want to answer. But I would say I tend to lean quantitative maybe comes more naturally to me that when I have qualitative questions or I have graduate students who now are wanting to do something qualitatively, I pick up the phone and call my friends to say, someone's saying this to me, does that land with you? What am I missing? And same still when I'm doing something quantitative, whether it's you know, sending Lindsay an email or a, a text message to one of my, my friends in the field to make sure that, you know, I'm not missing something. There's different ways to do this. So really being open to feedback and idea sharing and collaboration has been invaluable in strengthening my own research agenda. And that's also true with people outside of the leadership field. So some of the people I rely on for sharpening my research capacity are in communications and in psychology because they're using theories and methods that aren't yet adapted in leadership. And likewise, so we're able to strengthen each other in an interdisciplinary sense as well. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we're so informed by so many disciplines. I think that's one of the things that's so great about being in this uh, in this field. It's it's just, you know, uh, I guess just shaking with interdisciplinarity and the opportunity to to collaborate uh, oftentimes uh, raises this little head, maybe more so than some other some other disciplines. Uh, and too, I, I love what you all were sharing about. Um, and, and I guess Lizzie specifically, you know, around, you know, I don't know where does if I want to learn about this method, I got to like, I got to read about it. I got to see some examples of it. And so I, I know that when I'm um, with our master's and doctoral students, they're like, oh, I have to read so many peer reviewed articles, moan, 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 grunt, 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 you know? And so I'm like, well, okay. Um, if you've never seen any of these things before, and, and oftentimes I, I use the analogy of um, I don't know if either of you were, well, I think we talked about that. Were you in band, either of you, Lindsay or, or Hannah? I think. Middle school, trumpet. Middle school, tr trumpet. Okay. I, I'm not the jazz genius that you are, unfortunately. Well, oh, well that's that's kind of you. Um, and well, we and we did get to have our my, my good friend do that jazz session there at the, what was it, the 20, what was the 2016, 17 Charleston conference? That was still like one of my favorite things I was able to ever do with, uh, our, and he does the theme music for the podcast, uh, Dr. Matt White. And so that's that awesome connection. Um, but what I was getting at was, so, well, Matt and I, um, we first met in seventh grade um, and we were in middle school together in band. We were had this amazing band director, uh, Tom Zogelhofer in eighth and ninth grade, who really introduced us to like jazz, you know, and he said, y'all want to get better at playing jazz? We're like, yeah. And he was an off the charts trumpet player himself. So we were like, anytime he would play, we thought we were like listening to like Dizzy Gillespie. Um, and so, but he would be like, y'all want to get better? You got to, what, how many jazz albums do you own? Are you listening to jazz music? You know, and as we would listen to more music and we'd go home and we'd get Miles Davis and we'd put it on at Thelonious Monk and, you know, all, all these, you know, Duke Ellington and all these, you know, all some of all the greats and listen. And as we listened more, we were picking up on all these new things and starting to get better mental representations and like understanding and expertise about like music itself and what jazz was, its structure, all these types of things. And we found that that really helped us to improve our playing. Similarly, like the more research you read, the better you get at understanding your field, certain statistical approaches, what have you. And so I guess, you know, that I think, and kind of combining that with this idea that y'all have put together with like the jam sessions, right? Getting people together to just talk about research, bounce ideas off of each other um, is very, very similar to that. And I think it has, as, as you were mentioning, Hannah, like really started influence in a positive way. You're working on your research agenda and having that community to, to, to really kind of propel that. So I'm curious, like for, for both of you. So, so Lindsay, I think you and I started as faculty, maybe the same time, 2012. Is that was that when you started as, as junior faculty? So over a decade, I guess, at this point. Um, like, and then Hannah, you're very much junior faculty at Virginia Tech on your first year on the tenure track. I, I would love to hear a little bit from both of you. How did you develop your scholarly agenda or how are you continuing to, to kind of work on that? Well, Dan, doing research is like producing great jazz music, right? Maybe you have some, some ideas that you're interested in. You've got some methods that you think are a good match for your research questions. So just like Jazzy, like you have a scale that you're working in, right? But then when you go about doing the research, there's a lot of, there's a lot of sweating, right? <laughs> there's a lot of things where, ah, the, things are going to change on the fly and I've got to adjust to this and, ooh, I learn a new thing, so I better incorporate that in, right? So I, I, anyway, what I, what I love about the research process is in developing a scholarly agenda is that often how it starts and how it ends look differently. So what I envisioned uh, my research agenda would be about has, has molded and shaped over time, and that, that molding and shaping 
gets influenced by the students I get to work with, right? Hannah and, and the stuff that she did introduced me to methods and ideas that I hadn't thought about before. Uh, the, the same has been true with other graduate students. So certainly in the work that I do, uh, it's I'm studying short and long-term effects of leadership mentoring. Uh, I study things like youth leadership, community leadership. So maybe those are the, that's the scale, right? That, I, that I'm working in, but how I go about doing that research uh, gets molded and shaped and changed. And uh, there's a lot of improvisation that, that goes along as well. Lindsay, I love that image too. I think about the research agenda like a research agenda journey too, especially as a young faculty, you feel like, what are you researching? You know, I have ideas and areas of that I have a focus that focused on uh, and I know it will continue to evolve. So I think about with my research agenda journey, I started doing, looking at community development and successful transfers of leadership in rural communities. That was the first undergraduate research project I did with Lindsay and we started talking about hope and there was these mentoring and small group of really invested community members who uh, invested in the next generation and started to spread that contagion effect. So that was my first exposure. And now mo most of what I do is not focused on community development, although there's connections around mentoring and identity development that are still there, but it's evolved over time as, as we've grown and changed. So I think about it like so much of my early journey was aligned with Lindsay because Lindsay was my research advisor, my mentor throughout graduate school too. So, so much of what I was doing, we, we were uh, you know, doing very similar things. Lindsay was bringing me in on what she was doing, helping teaching me the foundations of conducting research. And then towards final years of my my PhD, I started doing just a, th a few things, still connected. Always, Lindsay's been a wonderful mentor on even the projects that she's not on, but with other graduate students. And, and we're exploring some new different ideas and different theories that we're talking about in grad school. And so Lindsay's still there and mentoring, but I'm starting to do my own thing a little bit more. And then now as an assistant professor, Lindsay and I still get to collaborate. There's still projects we're working on, which is wonderful because I think in each other, we found great collaborators and, and, and friends uh, and mentor. Uh, but then I'm also doing my own thing. So it, it's a slow process of, I think, the, the mentor, mentee, the mentor pushing the mentee to do their own thing, the mentee being willing to engage and build their own research agenda. So for me, much of it is still connected to my roots in generativity and mentoring. But I started to focus more on uh, leader development, looking at identity, so how we see ourselves and how that's transformed through meaning-making experiences, so meaning-making techniques, really trying to center this process of meaning making in leader development and leader identity. And that stems from a lot of our work on generativity and that even in Lindsay's dissertation, she found that students who were highly generative, that it wasn't just something they did. Mentoring wasn't something they did. Generative also meaning care for the next generation. But these students who should care for the next generation, mentoring wasn't something they did, it's who they are. And that was a theme throughout the graduate work that it becomes something that I am, not just what I do. And so I was really interested in exploring more specifically how do these processes become not just what we do, but who we are? What are those specific meaning-making processes, experiences, interactions that give rise to change? So that's resulted in skill development work, qualitative work, quantitative work that is still really connected to Lindsay's research, which allows us to collaborate, but also it has encouraged me to explore new areas on my own. I love the way that y'all have, have shared that that background in a way that you talked about the, the ways in which your relationship has grown as you're growing this research. And I feel like that's been a theme from everybody that we've talked to. Like, yes, you're you're publishing and you're presenting, but there's some really strong relationships that are being built in this space as you're doing these things collaboratively and together. And I almost like wonder, do we I think we know our own experiences, but do we talk about this enough and use it as a way to bring people in? We know that if you have a sense of belonging in that space and you can see yourself doing that work, then it's it's natural to find the people that you can work with and build with. I just feel like it's so underrated. Um, I also think too, a lot of what y'all talked about, like I have this theory that leadership educators are the best faculty members and, and go with me on this. So I feel like because we know leadership development so well, we have to be able to model it for our students. And so we're naturally bringing these in. And so when you're talking about, you know, learning new methods, that's something we would want our students to do, right? We want them to be curious. And so we're almost innately doing these things and they're paying attention because we know this current undergrads, early grad students, they watch what we do. They have high expectations of us. And so we're like unintentionally doing these things that are innate to us because of the space that we're in. And so I, I love it. 
I will also share Dr. Stephen Brookfield has a band. So if we want to keep this jazz research thing going there, I'm sure he wouldn't mind a spinoff or guest appearance with us. Um, I, I feel like that, that could be handled. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll go ahead. No, I was just going to echo the notion that leadership educators as a community of scholars is such a powerful thing in that I'll never forget, before I was a faculty member, I was a graduate student for NHRI Leadership Mentoring, and we had the great fortune of having Dr. John Creswell at our institution, and he did some research on NHRI toward the, the later years in his faculty career. And one of the most powerful things he said in a meeting, he said, look, in the academic circles I run in, he said, there's this sick high that I see my peers getting over tearing other scholars down. He said, I can't believe how many times I go to a conference and it almost becomes a joke around who, who will be the harshest, who will tear down, publicly tear down uh, someone the worst in these breakout sessions or in large group sessions. And he said, I have watched this field within methodologists um, he said, I, I've watched us cannibalize each other with that approach. And so what I love about this community of scholars within leadership education is that there is so much effort taken to building that community, to creating safe space for trying, for making it very developmental in nature. I, I love that leadership educators as a scholarly community care very much about the developmental nature um, of our field. And we try to bring that into how we research as well, um, that it's it's not okay to tear one another down, that we go out of our way um, to offer developmental feedback. So I, I love that you bring that, that up because I think what we experience in leadership education is very different from other uh, discipline fields. I, I agree. So I'm in uh, communications and, and I, I teach in public relations and the foundation of our field is this idea of building relationships, uh, you know, with various stakeholders. And in our little bubble, I do feel like it's like that, like, you know, when people talk about going to faculty meetings and then being kind of these fights, like I look forward to the times where I'm able to connect with my colleagues and I want to hear what they have to say and I value their opinions. And, but I do admit it's this little bubble that we live in. Cause you know, we hear kind of what happens in other spaces, but I, I, I agree with your, your assessment about, you know, the relationship building that happens in leadership education. I feel like once you walk in, somebody is grabbing you like, Hey, I don't know you. Like, let's talk about these things. Oh, you think this, um, I, I thought about Hannah, when you said Julie was in your session, I'm sure she walked out and was like, Oh my God, I just love her. And she's so great. And I can't wait to work with her and I'm going to read every, you know, so I'm sure that was her. So as you're fangirling, she's like fangirling you being up front. But I just feel like that's the the nature, that's the consistency of it. And, and I also think too, like it's nice to be in that space. Like as you're trying to figure out and explore and especially when leadership is being questioned in our world, like it feels good to know you can bring some of those into a community of scholars. It, it feels psychologically safe. You can bring that into a community of scholars and really get honest feedback that's designed to help you think through. So, so yeah. I, I agree, Lauren. I think as a, emerging scholar, young, young, younger faculty member that I've seen so many people within our field model well, mentorship, development. I've seen people model well. I don't know that we did that right. I don't know that we used the right method there. If I were to do that study again, I'd probably do it differently. Even Lindsay and I have had some exchanges with Susan Comavez over email, which again is a big fangirl moment for me every time. Like Susan Comavez knows my name. Uh, but she would email and say, if we were, I think we might've missed this in the leadership identity development theory. I, I think we didn't capture this correctly. So seeing a willingness to collaborate and engage and a willingness to say, I think there's things that we're still learning. So modeling, modeling those areas as well. How wonderful. Susan is a fan of the show. So if she gets to this part, she will send you an email like, oh, thank you so much. Uh, so, so, um, we, we are coming to the end, but we have a couple more things we want to ask you. Um, we know that, and we talked about this before we jumped on it's CFP time in the leadership education space. So there's 50 of them due for all of these conferences, Would you talk a little bit about how y'all prepare, like, how do you choose your topic? How do you work together on what you present? Like a little bit of the logistics of your process. 
Well, again, you know, just like making great jazz music, there's a lot of sweating and swearing, you know, probably that goes into, into that process. <laughs> and, you know, it, it always comes together. It's like every masterpiece comes with a lot of messes to get there, right? It takes a lot of messes to make a masterpiece. Uh, so so for a lot of things, there might be things, and Hannah, there are things that we worked on where we had fits and starts, you know, things that were like, ah, this could be an idea for a conference, conference proposal. And sometimes it comes together. <laughs> sometimes it comes together screaming in hat at the last minute. Uh, sometimes things didn't quite get off the ground. Uh, but what I what I love, and, and we did this a lot when, when Hannah was in, in graduate school, and, and, we, and we still do it today, is we would get together and say, okay, what are some of the things that we're working on that could turn into a conference proposal? And there were so many points in time where Hannah opened my eyes to things that could become a conference submission that I hadn't even thought of. You know, like, oh, we're trying this new training model with our staff advisors within NHRI. I think that could be a conference proposal. Like, brilliant. Um, or there were things that she was working on in classes um, that seemed to fit perfectly into a conference submission. So um, a willingness to, to have conversations, to try out some ideas. Uh, again, some things might come together at the last minute. Some things may not. Uh, but but being willing to, to get together early in the process to say, okay, what are some things that we're working on? How could that turn into a conference submission? I agree with that, Lindsay, too. And something that as I've reflected on my graduate career, Lindsay, really empowering me, encouraging me to leverage my school opportunities into outputs. So whether that's a conference presentation, a poster, a roundtable, a research presentation, and then translating that into a journal article. So really seeing full through the dissemination of scholarship and knowledge into various outlets, outlets, which is something that I've really taken with me into faculty is talking with graduate students. I just was last month about, about research and thinking about how you're taking what you're doing in your classes to strengthen the field. Because the things that students are writing now, I was just talking with, I have a really wonderful first year PhD student named Bola, and she's doing great work around the systems thinking and how that applies to leadership and the leadership development of women in particular uh, in Nigeria and in Africa. And those are really interesting cutting edge ideas that she's writing about in classes that need to be going to our field, whether it's roundtables or posters to start gathering ideas, sharpening, sharpening ideas. So I think about that a lot with graduate students is you are doing work in your classes that the field needs because you're starting to push boundaries. You're drawing connections that we haven't yet drawn because we're not in classes anymore as faculty typically. And so I really been working with grad students on, on pushing those things out and then following through the process of, of getting them in the literature so people can use them to strengthen their own research and practice. Yeah, I think too. I mean, I love those stories because it's, it really is, it's, it can be really, really just like the anxiety from statistics, right? The anxiety of these golfs for proposals and go, oh my gosh, oh, there's like 18 different formats and 14 different, you know, session types and, and just really just kind of breaking that down and, and, you know, and looking at just like you were talking about, about going back to like a, a leadership quarterly or journal of leadership organizational studies and just so, well, what does a good proposal look like? I mean, one of the things I love about ALE as far as the proposal process is if you go back and look at the proceedings, that are on the website at leadershipeducators.org like, and go back to the past conferences and all the proceedings and programs are there that you can download. Literally what's in the proceedings are the proposals, like with few exceptions. Like sometimes they'll say, hey, you know, do you want to put any finishing touches on this before they're printed in the proceedings? But if you want to see what a good proposal looks like for ALE, go check out one of the um one of those, right? And and so I think that they do a really good job of that. And I think ILA has kind of evolved with that too. I think now what is in the program and like they do like the little tiny URLs or whatever to the, from the programs um, are much more kind of a mirror image of what was in the proposal versus just like an abstract. Um, and so they're willing to share a little bit more, which I think is is super helpful. And I, I guess kind of to, to piggyback on that. So I love what y'all shared about like how you tease that stuff out and like figure out like, what are you going to prepare? And I know that, and I think Hannah, even very much so in the last couple of years, as you've kind of immersed yourself in that junior faculty role and then being in, was like a clinical role or, or, or like a professor of practice, I think for the year before that, you were definitely not afraid to reach out and collaborate with others in the field. So I'd love for you to speak just a little bit about that. And then also, so once you presented at a conference, publishing something very shortly after, like how has that worked out for y'all? Absolutely, Dan. In fact, I was thinking coming into ALE, this is my first, I'm submitting a, a paper that I'm the only author on for the first time ever. I have never submitted anything to a conference by myself because I have the best collaborators. So I, I think I find people and I just like, I'm never letting you go. I say that Lindsay, that you all were saying earlier, you know, she saw something in me. I think I was also like, 
just clung to Lindsay because I found something good and I found a great mentor and person I enjoyed working with. And I've gotten the opportunity to do that with others in the field too. So I, one of the collaborations I really enjoyed is with Jonathan Orsini, who I know has been on the field and is down in Florida. And that started after an ALE, he was presenting on mentoring and I really liked what he was talking about. So I sent him an email and we set up a research jam session. He had some questions around some data and didn't quite make sense of it. And that's where we got to this idea of meaning making. And so we've had some really great productive, fun sessions uh, because of that and a willingness to reach out and collaborate and find things that each other are good at. So I think that's something that Lindsay and I have really worked on and same in other collaborations is figuring out what people's strengths are in the process, tying them in, setting up checkpoints and consistency to figure out how we work well together. But certainly collaborations have been make, and it makes it fun. It's, it's productive and, and it makes it all really fun to get to do this work with people we like, uh, and where we're modeling these ideas of collaboration and connection. I was just listening to Susan Comefez's podcast on here too. And it was all about collaboration, which is 0% surprising to me knowing uh, Dr. Comefez, but also reassuring. It's like that is, has been true for, for me too, is building connections and collaborations with people both at my like, peer group, with people older than me. Dan, you've been a great mentor and uh, collaborator. I remember on a call earlier in this year, I was asking Dan like, what does it mean to be a successful junior faculty? How do I do this well? And Dan had said, think about who are your dream collaborators? And I said, oh, so you want to work on something with me? <laughs> so thinking about collaborations that uh, are going to be, be fun and meaningful and exciting in our work. And for me to turn those into paper presentations uh, has felt like a natural extension and something that I probably that was modeled by Lindsay is even when things are submitted for ALE, trying to get them in a place where they're pretty much ready to go. So the lift is really low. We get out of conferences, make some tweaks based on the feedback, edits, and then get it ready to submit to a journal. And also knowing if there's any younger people out there who are listening, if you get rejected, because you will, it's just the name of the game, keep publishing and submitting. We have all been rejected a lot of times in publishing. So continue going and working. But I would say that's been for me, a lot of it is trying to just make it a smooth, smooth, smooth process of writing and setting deadlines for myself and my collaborators. Lindsay, what are your thoughts? Absolutely. Well, and what I love too, is once you take a conference submission and turn it into a publication manuscript, recognizing that the, the process is still well in development during that time. So you're going to get reviewer feedback, get yourself a stiff drink. You know, it's gonna, <laughs> there might be some Woo! Some rough things that you that you get from reviewer feedback, but um, one of one of my favorite lines, and this is something that I've I've really had to think about over the course of my faculty career. One of my favorite lines now, when I submit the cover letter for the revise and resubmit, is thanking reviewers for sharpening the present sharpening the presentation of this manuscript. That I I've come to understand that. At, you know, after I whew, get get myself a glass of wine while I read the reviewers, right? Whew, take an ego check. It's okay. Um, but on on the back end of that process, once I've made the revisions, uh, I've tried to change the way I go about gratitude. Um, so when I journal about gratitude, think about gratitude at the end of a revision process, to take a second to say, okay, at the end of the day, the reviewers did do something to sharpen the presentation of this manuscript. And that was a really, really, really important part of the part of the process. And, you know, and, and I will say, I want to give uh, kudos to Hannah because on one of the research studies that, that we did, it, it was a, a mixed method study. It was a multi-year study. We put a ton of hard work into this and we submitted to a journal and it got desk rejected. And I was, I, I mean, I felt humiliated. Like I felt so bad. I felt like a failure as a mentor. Like I didn't set up this manuscript. Well, I was so frustrated with myself. Um, I, and I, yeah, I just, I felt like a failure as a mentor that I didn't set up this, this manuscript well, well enough. And, and I was so upset with myself. And so I write this email to everyone on the manuscript. Like, I'm so sorry. I, I feel embarrassed, um, that I, that I didn't set up this manuscript well enough. And Hannah was the first one to come back and say, Lindsay, this is what it means to be in the game. Do not apologize. This is part of it. We're just going to pick ourselves up and we're going to try again um, in a different journal. And, and now that that has been published and it was a wonderful process, but boy, 
talk about such a powerful moment um, from someone who was a, a mentee of mine at the time, just to say, hey, this is what it means to be in the game and and grace for it doesn't ha- it doesn't have to be perfect. We're not perfect people. We're not perfect researchers. Um, this is all being part of the game. What a, a wonderful story to, to wrap up on. And it reminds me of our conversation with uh, Matt Zochik. He talks a lot about humility in leadership. And so like, just for you to be able to say like, you know, I'm sorry about this. And then they come back and say like, no, we, this is part of the game. And and to, to give you that gratitude in return and that grace in return is reflects on the relationships and importance that we talked about. Um, so again, thank you for your time today. We will express our gratitude as always. We know that you could be doing a billion other things but we value your voice and your comments in this space. And we uh, appreciate um, what you've shared, kind of peeling back the the curtain so that we can see what what your relationship looks like with research. And we want to wish you the best of luck as you continue teaching and research. Thanks for the opportunity to be with you. Yes, thank you all. I was thinking too, right behind me is a sign that I've had in my office since I think even graduate school and working with Lindsay that says, today I stood taller from walking among the trees which is how I feel about everyone on this call, but also the leadership education network in general. So thank you for having us. Thank you. Do you connect with leadership educators virtually? Please follow us on social media. Search the Leadership Educator Podcast on LinkedIn to find our page. And find us on Twitter at Lead Educator Pod for episode release information, show notes, and upcoming events. You can connect with me on Twitter at Dr. Underscore Leadership. And Lauren is at M-R-S-L-A-U-R-J-B. That's Miss Laura J-B. You can find the episodes wherever podcasts are available. We also encourage you to please subscribe at theleadershipeducator.com and rate us five stars as the more you rate us, the easier it is for others to find us. We'd like to thank the James M. Cox Jr. Institute for Journalism, Innovation, Management, and Leadership within the Grady College of Journalism and Mass Communication at the University of Georgia. The support was facilitated by Dr. Keith Herndon, William S. Morris Chair in News Strategy and Management. And our wonderful theme music was composed, performed, and mixed by Dr. Matt White, trumpeter, composer, and associate professor and chair of jazz studies at the University of South Carolina. Check him out at mattwhitejazz.com. Matt, thank you so much for sharing your musical genius with our audience. And finally, we are grateful for the support of two professional associations that are destinations for leadership educators, the Association of Leadership Educators and the International Leadership Association. ALE, which funded the start of the podcast, continues to promote our mission of continuing conversations with leadership professionals. Check out all that ALE has to offer at leadershipeducators.org. The global reach of the ILA has helped us to expand our listenership beyond our original borders. Check out the ILA's programs and resources at ilaglobalnetwork.org.